Okay, let's pray once again as we open the word together. Father, we're looking at your word now, so it's time for us to draw our attention to you, not so much in acts of worship, but in, well, it is an act of worship to read your word, but to see what you have to say to us. We offer you praise, and now we ask you to speak through your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 16 is where we have been. And we're going to finish it out today, that chapter. I think, I think one of the fundamental aspects of Christian morality and teaching that differs from almost every other moral system is the willingness of the followers of Jesus not to insist on their own rights. Um, some of us do that, and some of us fall into that, but that's what we're called to reflect upon. Um, it's not that rights don't matter, but in the teaching and the example of Jesus, other things matter even more. They stand over that. There are higher principles. And that teaching is really found in its purest form in, in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Just from a moral point of view, that teaching changed the whole world, because nobody had ever taught that before, or anything like that, and most people still don't accept it. <laughs> but justice, or what we might call insisting on our own rights, often requires some level of payback, and we're actually admonished here not to do that. So the law given to Moses um, an eye for an eye, that's, a, that's a actually a wise, um, that was a world-changing uh, law code as well back in the ancient world. It's a, it's a principle of law and criminal justice and that uh, is a good thing. But when, when that principle for justice, what courts are supposed to do, is twisted by human nature, which it was by the teachers of Israel, and brought down to interpersonal communications and interpersonal relationships, an eye for an eye. That's what Moses said. Um, that's where things go really, really wrong. People actually used a good law to justify their hatred of people that wronged them or they perceive wronged them or something like that. And that's not the meaning of an eye for an eye. That's for judicial things. That's the we have a just government. I think it was candidate Trump who said when he was asked what his favorite Bible verse was, he said an eye for an eye. And, uh, and he kind of lives that out, right? I mean, that's kind of what he's known for. But, um, but Jesus specifically repudiates that as a, as a means of how we live, as, as a measure for our, our own personal lives. I think the best way to say it is we'd rather be wronged than do wrong, right? And that's, that's a pretty high standard to reach for. Doing wrong is sin, and that's the one thing we don't want to do. We don't want to offend God with sin, so it's better to be wronged than to do wrong. Being wronged for the, for the righteous 
actually has God's approval. So there's a passage in um, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you. It's 1 Peter 2.20. You can just listen. But he says, What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's just a beautiful passage. Somebody in this world has to show forth that kind of life, forgiveness and mercy and patience. Somebody's got to be able to forgive and, and be willing to lose so that righteousness can prevail. That's, somebody's got to do that. And guess what? We're the called to be those people that do that. Jesus says God is kind to his enemies. And, um, and you know, if you think about it, the wicked have many pleasures in this world that God permits them. They can go down to the beach and enjoy the sunset and the cool air and hike in the mountains and enjoy the beautiful scenery. They can enjoy all of God's creation and have genuine pleasures from that. And he's kind to them even if they hate him. And we need to be that way as well. So on the specific matter of, of rights, the Romans had a right to compel a non-citizen to carry a load for a mile. So a Roman soldier, especially them, because they always carried their packs and all their gear and stuff like that, they could just grab some slob off the street and say, carry my pack, carry my shield and my helmet or whatever. And, uh, and they'd have to do it for a mile. And then at the end of a mile, a person could say, sir, it's been a mile now and I uh, appreciate you letting me help you. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm going to leave now. And, and, and he couldn't do anything about that. He couldn't make them. But Je you know what Jesus said? Go the extra mile voluntarily carry his pack an extra mile and then say, God bless you. Have you ever heard about Jesus? <laughs> and uh, that's, go the extra mile. That's what that phrase actually comes from, that teaching there. So can you imagine how different the world would be if people in general followed that teaching of Christ and went the extra mile for, for other people that were maybe their oppressors even, that didn't like them? Paul exemplified uh, letting go of his rights or what would be proper and just for him in all kinds of ways, in very practical ways. For one thing, he, he always refused to be paid for his ministry from people he was currently ministering to. He would never do that. So he worked. He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. And he explains that in great detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I just want to read one verse out of that chapter. Um, his main point is in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12, where he says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What would the hindrance be? Well, you're here for our money, because that's what most religions do, and that's what a lot of Christians do. I mean, uh, you know, if you send your money to a guy that needs a private jet to fly around the world to do ministry, you're, 
you're on the wrong side of that <laughs> that attitude there. there. There are many things more important than asserting our rights. There's many things more important than an eye for an eye and, and things like that. So the, the gospel is obviously the most important thing of all in that. How, how does our behavior and how does our response to the world and even injustice in the world, how does that affect our witness for Christ and the gospel? That's what you have to constantly be reminding yourself of and thinking about. So in today's text, Paul's going to make a really different decision. He's going to assert his rights. And he's doing it for a wonderful reason. Because he's mad. No, that's not why. Because <laughs> they beat him up. No, that's not why either. What the text doesn't say, it, it, what it is, but it's pretty obvious he's doing it for the sake of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 16 here, and we've already talked about Paul's horrible experience in Philippi in terms of getting beaten up and thrown into a dungeon, and then the wonderful experience of God shaking the dungeon loose and letting everybody out, and then they stayed because the jailer was going to kill himself, right? And Paul said, don't, we're all here. He was going to kill himself because he would be tortured to death if he let prisoners escape. So they sacrificed their freedom, the, an opportunity God. You know, if, if that happened to me, I would just like be out. <laughs> I wouldn't think a thing about the jailer. Good, he's going to kill himself. It's, it's like, I mean, God opened the doors with this earthquake, so I'm, I'm, I'm through it. He, he set it up for me. And so Paul didn't see it that way. Paul saw it as, here's an opportunity. God set it up so we don't leave and run away, and we save this guy's life. And then the guy just falls on his face before them, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Because he was just instantly convicted about his sin because of their kindness to him. So that's the story, and uh, it's an amazing story. And of course, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So, um, so in verse 31 there, where am I? I'm on the wrong page actually in my Bible. There it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So Paul sacrificed his liberty to do that ministry. I've got to talk about this world word household really quick because um, I'm going to take a little diversion. So take everything I just said and hold it and move over to another place right now. There are people you might run into that would say that um, there's a doctrine that kind of floats around. There's not many people that believe it, but especially in sort of what we might call hyper-patriarchal circles that... Um, the head of the house believes for the family. And if that person believes, everybody in that family is going to be saved. It's a kind of a weird doctrine, but I, I kind of get where it comes from because it's sort of drawn out of a couple of places in the book of Acts here where, where a whole household gets saved, right? And um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. It's not teaching that here, but uh, households are saved several times. So you can see where somebody might get that. There's not a strong case for this idea at all. But household salvation, well, obviously it flies in the face of the clear teaching of the Bible that we're all individually accountable to God, right? And we have to come to him on our own. But so let me run through the, the situations where that happened real quick because there's really three of them. One, one was in Acts chapter 10 and 11 where Cornelius, the Roman officer, remember God's doing things to bring Peter and this Roman soldier together so that Peter can evangelize him. And he'll be the first serious Gentile convert um, not, not the only, not really the technically the first, but it's the major event that triggers this whole thing of Gentile evangelism. So God's going to bring them together, so he gives him both of them visions and brings them together. And in Acts 11:14, when Peter's telling the story about what happened in Acts chapter 10 with that guy, um, 
Corn- Peter says that Cornelius the Roman officer, um, God spoke to him and said, send for Peter, he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. Okay? So that's the first time this idea occurs. And what actually happens? Do you remember what happened? We were there ages ago. Well, his household is saved, but I mean, God told Cornelius that his household would be saved, right? So this is a work of God in bringing this about, and God knows the future. So that's just a promise that that's going to happen for his particular household. But how did they come to believe? Or how did they come to be saved? Well, Peter preached to the whole household. I mean, Cornelius not only invited his household, he brought all his friends and neighbors to come and hear Peter as well. So it was like a big event. And if you remember, Peter sharing the gospel and the Holy Spirit just fell on them all while he was speaking. So God did that. It had nothing to do with Cornelius as the head of the house or anything like that. God just poured out his grace on these Gentiles and that was to lead to the big Jerusalem council and all of that. And so it's a sovereign work of God. The, the household didn't need to wait for Cornelius. God poured out the Holy Spirit on everybody at the exact same time. So then in, in Acts 11.18, still talking about that event, it plainly says that God granted them all repentance that leads to life. So they all repented. So they all believed. They individually, they all believed. That's what actually happened that day. They all repented and believed. So the second time you see a household salvation, if you will, is, is in Acts 16 with Lydia just a little bit before. And it says in verse 15, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So that's really the story of her salvation and her household's salvation. It's super abbreviated. So we don't know any details about what occurred. We know the Lord opened her heart and then they're all getting baptized in verse 15. So it doesn't say anything about else what happened. So obviously Paul preached to all of them and it was the same kind of thing happened. Well, you could read it any way you want, but it's not definitive one way or the other. And then we have the Philippian jailer story, the guy I call Marcus the jailer. We don't know what his name is. I just like to call him that. But because, um, you know, people should have a name, right? So we're calling him Marcus. But um, verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So... Was him being saved covering his house? No. They had to speak the gospel to his whole house. So they, and they all came to this place where they believed. So in Cornelius' house, the whole household, household heard the gospel, and this um, spirit fell on all of them, and they were all baptized. In Marcus the jailer's house, Luke tells how the jailer took Paul and Silas home and washed their wounds. Verse 33. That's a beautiful picture, by the way, of this guy that had put them in the dungeon and put their feet in stocks and all of that and now he's washing their wounds you know it's just the love of Christ fills him after he accepts Christ he took them that very hour verse 33 that that very hour of the night and washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized he and all his household okay well there you go see maybe maybe no no you got to keep reading he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. See, they all believed, right? So just like what happened in Cornelius' situation, the whole place believed. So take that doctrine of household salvation and just kind of throw it somewhere because that's not, that they all believed and salvation is always by faith. We've seen that over and over again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Well, that means my household will be saved. No, think about the words of that sentence. Just think about it carefully. Salvation comes by faith, believing in the Lord Jesus, whether it's you 
or anyone in your household. That's all that means, that sentence. Just think about it. Paul's saying, if you believe and anyone in your household believes, they will be saved. That's all that sentence means. It's, it's a pretty simple sentence, actually. And it's a great comfort to know that if my family trusts in Jesus, they'll be saved too. That's, and that's what Paul was offering to Marcus, the jailer here. Salvation is for all of you by faith, if you all believe. So it's about the availability of Christ to save anyone. That's when he says you, you will be, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. If they believe, they'll be saved. That's what he's saying. Okay, now, let's go back to the theme we were on before. Just, that's the other section. We're moving over here now. So let's um, talk about rights, rights as, as Christian believers. Paul was often willing to forsake his rights. We talked about some examples of that. But here, and at other times, he very strongly asserts his rights in the legal realm. In other words, he presses the issue. But if you look at why he does it or doesn't do it, I, I think you can see that it's, it's for exactly the same reason that he forsakes his rights and demands his rights. It's for the same reason. It's for the gospel. Different circumstances call for different kinds of actions. But the controlling principle in any given case is what I read in 1 Corinthians 9.12. I'll read it one more time. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. So Paul's focus is always on serving people on behalf of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died for our sins and will welcome us so we can become God's children through faith in him. Wow, that's such a great message. So what would hinder that? Well, if it's a legal problem that's going to hinder that, and he has a, a legal recourse, he's going to take it. If it's people just being mean to him and stuff like that, he'll let that go. Because whatever is a hindrance to the gospel is what his focus is going to be. Always the gospel, always the gospel. Reaching people and getting healthy churches started and growing disciples, that's what Paul is all about. Usually that means limiting his freedom in certain ways to not be an offense to people. So here's a Jew, what's he doing? He's eating ham sandwiches with those Gentiles. How can he do that? Well, he's just, he's not going to offend them by separating himself from them, so he's going to eat whatever they eat, you know? And Jesus had declared all foods clean, so that's okay. So usually uh, he's limiting his freedom, but sometimes he's asserting his rights. So think about Philippi and what happened to him, if you were here earlier and went through these stories with us here. It's, it's just a few weeks, and in just a few weeks, Paul has this little church going in the city of Philippi, the first church in, in Europe. And we already know of two households that are going to become the nucleus of this group. One is Lydia's household, the, probably the richest gal in town, and the other one is this pathetic jailer, who's probably a pretty much of a, on a low-life scale in town. So they've got this little church going, and there might be other people in the weeks they've been there they shared the gospel with and are going to join this, this little group of, of new believers. But think about the situation in Philippi. They are already enemies of the gospel there, already, right? What happened? Remember Paul cast a demon out of the slave girl and her masters who made a fortune off of her lost their income and freaked out and dragged them into the, before the magistrates and in the public square and condemned them and said all kinds of things. Not about what they actually did, but just saying these guys are anti-Roman and they're spreading anti-Roman religions and customs and stuff like that. And so this mob grew up and so they got beaten and thrown into the dungeon, right? That's all that stuff that happened. The praetors, who, who are the magistrates responsible for justice, 
bowed to the mob. So they're pathetic characters. They're not exactly Gary Cooper, you know, I mean, or, or whatever. Whoever that Western hero is that stands against the mob and you're not going to hang him on my watch, you know, that kind of stuff. They're not those kind of people. They're, yeah, whatever you want, beat them. Yeah, we'll throw them in the dungeon for you. Yeah, because they want to be popular, right? So um, these owners of this girl um, raised this mob, again, anti-Jewish mob, really, against Paul and Silas. So anyway, all of that's going on. So Paul's suddenly freed by an earthquake. And everybody knew about the earthquake, and everybody would have pretty soon heard about the, them all being freed and not leaving town and all of those things happening. So all of this stuff happened in the night. It says the earthquake hit about midnight, and before the cock crowed in the morning, the Philippian jailer took them home, washed their wounds, heard the gospel, the whole family got baptized. All of that happened before the morning came, you know, so it's kind of an amazing thing. Here's the opportunity Paul has, verse 35. When day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul. So the, so the cops come, or the servants, probably the lictor guys that beat Paul, they're, they're sent to tell the jailer to let the prisoners go. Verse 36, the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. That's perfect. And Paul says, no. No. Why is he saying no? Because he believes this is the right time to stand up for his legal rights. So verse 37. Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. You get those magistrates down here, and they will walk us out, and we'll be seen with them. So remember, an entire mob just a day before had, had gotten them thrown in the dungeon and beaten mercilessly, right, with rods. So um, it's a good situation. So he wants to set a tone for how in unjust this was and by doing that he's going to protect this little new church he founded so the magistrates are going to have to publicly be seen releasing Paul and Silas for because they aren't guilty of anything right so he's helping the church there so it's going to and by the way this is the first time in the Bible we learn that Paul is a Roman a Roman citizen and that's going to come into handy on a number of occasions in the future we're going to find out uh, a citizen of Rome had legal protections that your average person in the Roman Empire did not have. Uh, Romans believed that everybody should have basic justice, except slaves, because they're, they're property. But every, even non-citizens, just people that lived in the far-flung places in Gaul or Spain or England or Palestine or whatever, if you were not a Roman citizen, and, and at the first century they weren't given that away real easily yet. They were starting to, but they later they would just give pretty much anybody in the empire citizenship, but they weren't doing that yet. But the Romans had special benefits before the law. One was that they couldn't do, they couldn't kill you in a merciless way. In other words, they would kill you quickly if you committed a capital crime. It's like crucifixion. You could not be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. Uh, Jesus was not a Roman citizen, so they crucified him. But if he had been, they would have just chopped his head off or something, something nice, quick. But probably the most important benefit for a citizen of Rome, anywhere in the empire, not only in Italy, but anywhere across the empire, if you were a citizen and you, were, you felt like you were treated unjustly in a court situation locally like this, 
you could appeal to the, to, to the emperor directly, Caesar, and you could go to Rome. Your, you were, your trial would be heard in Rome. That's the appellate court there. You could do that. You had the right to do that. And Paul is going to do that in the future in the book of Acts. But think about these magistrates who had him mer mercilessly beaten without a trial. They know he can do that when they find out that he's a Roman. See, they didn't know that. They didn't ask uh, or anything like that. So, verse 38. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. So I guess Silas is a Roman citizen too. So when they found that out, <gasps> see, if they just beat up regular folks, nobody would ever hear about it outside of Philippi. So it wasn't like a big deal. But now somebody might hear about it in Rome, and they could be in big trouble because the Romans really did believe in justice. That was a big thing for them. So uh, verse 39. And they came. The chief magistrates went to the prison, prisoner's house, I mean the jailer's house, to talk to the prisoners and publicly, um, they weren't planning to, they were just going to let them go. But they did come. And when they, um, when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So they come, they, they publicly bring them out. So people are going to see that and be able to talk about that. And, and, but probably more on the side, they're saying, just leave. You know, we're really sorry what happened. Just leave. And you know what? They're going to do it. So there's a public reckoning that happens. They come to the house. That's unheard of. They're pleading with the prisoners. That never happens. <laughs> so Paul has all the best cards in his hand, right? And he's playing them. They're legal cards. And, and he's on solid ground here. And they know it. He's not doing it for himself to get revenge on them or make them. In fact, he, do, he never does appeal that. He could still appeal that case and take it to the emperor or write a letter to the emperor and say, these guys beat me. I'm a citizen. And uh, so, so many, everybody in Philippi saw it. The entire community was there and watched us get beaten uh, mercilessly without a trial. And uh, he could get him in all kinds of trouble. He doesn't do that. He's not vindictive at all. And the welts are still on him. You know, it's not like, I'm feeling much better now. It's like, this is the next day. He's... He's uh, in a lot of pain, but he, he just wants to make the church safe. So they're willing to leave the city. Um, at, they're already on the bad guy list. There's already this crowd that hates them and could be a danger to the church in the future. So by bringing them there to publicly release them, he's protecting the church from these, from these guys that would, might, be, might be hateful towards the church. So um, that's what he's thinking about. There's a word there in verse 40 that tells us that the church is going to do okay without Paul and Silas being there to shepherd them. I want you to, I'm going to read it, see if you can find the, the key word in there that lets you know about the church. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Did you catch the word? It's they. They. They departed, not we departed. When, when they came there, it was we came, right? You remember? Luke, Luke that wrote this book that we're reading right now, Luke was left behind in Philippi. Uh, a, a good, solid man to lead and shepherd that church who wasn't part of the mob action because he was a Gentile. They didn't even, it was, like I said, it was kind of an anti-Jewish thing, beating up Paul and Silas, but um, he's okay. And we're going to find, there's, so there's the we sections in the book of Acts and the they sections. And the, 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 whenever it's we, Luke is with them. 
So now it goes from we to they. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul's going to come back through Philippi after a long time doing other things and pick up Luke and then all of a sudden it becomes a we again. It started going here and there. So Luke was there for quite a while and uh, taking care of this little church. So Luke stays and the mission team is off to the next major city they want to plant a church in and that's Thessalonica. But that's for another day, chapter 17. So just taking this story as we just talked about it here, what can we learn from Paul's actions on this particular day in Philippi? Well, there's similar forces at work to suppress Christianity in, in our time. In fact, in, uh, you know, Christians, Christians are being brutally murdered in Africa, in the Middle East, and in China. Tortured and murdered. I mean, that's going on. North Korea. I mean, horrible persecutions going on. But in Western countries, there's definitely, where there's a legal system to protect people, there's still a, a pretty active movement to suppress Christianity and keep Christians out of major public areas and speech and all of those kind of things. And of course, we're haters. You know, we're always, everything we believe for about morality it means we're hateful and all those kind of things. What do we do about that? When, when people are driven by ideology or prejudice or money, as the case would be here, sh should we turn the other cheek or should we stand up for our rights? Which, which is it? Well, you know, it really depends on the circumstances. And I think just like Paul, how he did it differently based on the circumstances. Personal attacks on us, turn the other cheek. Doesn't matter. That's what Jesus did. When it comes to government repression, which believers are facing more and more in Western countries, including America, the Lord has provided us with a resource. And there's a, there's a channel through which we can bring these issues up to, to a higher authority. When the gospel is restricted or following your conscience becomes a crime uh, against the state, I, I think it's totally in line with the apostolic practice and what Paul's doing here to appeal to rights that we are guaranteed by the highest law in the land, which is the Constitution of the United States, right? We're really fortunate we have that. You know, whoever those guys are that wrote the, the 10 um, amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, think of them highly because <laughs> they gave us something really, really precious in this country. Because that's mob rule. When, the, when everybody thinks, hey, let's just, let's just tell these people they're, they can't have this kind of job or they can't do this or they can't do that or they, they can't speak here because uh, if, if we didn't have freedom of speech and freedom of religion as part of our constitution, then we'd be out of luck altogether. And in other Western countries, we are. People are out of luck altogether. They're throwing people in jail. They're throwing legislators in jail in Europe for opposing homosexual marriage, just not believing that it's okay, just speaking against it. I mean, things like that. So... There have been so many cases in America in recent years, and in the last few, in the last few years, the last three or four years, there have been a bunch of what I would call small victories in the Supreme Court for religious freedom and free speech, and, and th those are really important cases, but they're small, because the current court likes to not do anything big. That's, they just don't do that. So they make these narrow decisions. Well, those narrow decisions add up over time. They're actually pretty good. They start building case law, but... Um, I just want to share with you a couple things. There was a big win uh, recently, very recently. There was a federal case involving a lawsuit at the University of Iowa because, and I'm going to read from an article now, in 2018, the University of Iowa deregistered InterVarsity Graduate Christian Fellowship and numerous other religious groups, including Muslim and Sikh groups, 
because of their common sense requirement, the, the group's requirement, that their leaders agree with their religious beliefs. So you have these student groups, right? And they, have, they can use space on campus to meet and sometimes even get little funds for doing little parties. or without, And there's all kinds of groups, all kinds of things, interest areas, all kinds of stuff. And they said, uh, no more, we're not going to let you religious groups meet on campus anymore. You have to go find some other place to meet. Well, wait a minute. For one thing, there's religious freedom, and this is an academic institution where freedom of speech and freedom of inquiry and, and should be that. And, but they didn't want them to be able to have the right to have the leaders of their group be all Christians, for example, in the Christian group, InterVarsity Fellowship, for example. Well, every other club has leaders that agree with the principles for which the club was formed. Anybody can come to those meetings, but the leaders can always be. So anyway, they went to court about it. And the court said um, the university um, justified its targeting of religious clubs by accusing the clubs of discrimination for wanting their leadership to share their values, even while the schools permitted other organizations sororities, fraternities, political activist groups to consider criteria such as student sex, race, I or ideology in the selection of leadership. So the federal court for the Eighth Circuit, this isn't the Supreme Court, this is a federal court, told university officials it was, quote, hard pressed to find a clearer example of viewpoint discrimination, unquote. So the, the court said, the courts are looking at this to go, that is the worst example of viewpoint discrimination we've ever seen. And of course they, so they voted in favor of InterVarsity and these <coughs> other groups. So that was an example of use that wasn't malicious, it was just, hey, our rights are being taken away from us, we're appealing to our, the Constitution, and they said, you're absolutely right. That is significant. That was the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, uh, just right below the Supreme Court. In another case, the Supreme Court very recently ruled eight to one in favor of this student at Gwinnett, uh, Georgia Gwinnett College. So he was just this, um, he was an immigrant student, Christian, he's on campus, he's evangelizing people. They said, well, you have to evangelize in a, in a free speech zone. And the free speech zones were about 10 feet square on a, on a giant campus. You have to do it. Well, he did it there. He, he agreed with it. He was, okay, free speech zone, I'll do it right there in your little space where you say I can do it. And then they told him he couldn't do it anymore because somebody complained. So he went with the... Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the best legal organizations defending free speech for, and religious practices and things like that. But um, they sued and the court agreed that the, the case that went to the Supreme Court was because the, the, when they sued, the college changed their policy. They, bow, they bowed. But they wanted to, Alliance Defending Freedom wanted to make a point, so they pressed for the matter that they need to pay him damages for, the, for, for what they did. And of course the school refused, and they, so it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and eight to one the Supreme Court said you can sue them for damages. Now how do you determine damage? They're not asking for a lot, it was just a principle kind of a thing, that, to make other colleges aware that it could cost them if they do that kind of thing, suppress free speech again. So they did, and um, they won that case eight to one. So that's pretty good. So, the Alliance Defending Freedom, they said it's not a matter of disrespecting authority, it's actually a matter of upholding the governing authority of the land, which is the Constitution. So that's the point. So, there are times when you can appeal to Caesar, or in our case, appeal to the Constitution of the United States to protect your rights. You know, you can do that. So, Paul could do that as a, as a Roman citizen, and we can do that too. So, you know, think about the flower lady, um, the baker guy. Um, the, there's a new one that just came out. The, 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 the Colorado that attacked the Baker guy like three times, he's on like his third case now of just being accused of discrimination when he doesn't discriminate against anybody. But um, 
they just went after somebody that builds websites. And there was a website that, that had a belief or, or, or a, a practice that he didn't personally, it violated his conscience to support. So he said, I can't do that for you. Find somebody else, please. And so he's being charged with a crime in Colorado for that. So these cases are going on and on like that. And um, they need to be settled out. And it's going to take a lot of legal wrangling to do that. That's okay to appeal to the Constitution of the United States to defend your right to, to preserve your conscience, to, to not violate your conscience. That, that's always been a right in America, and that, that needs to be upheld as well. So anyway, I think it's appropriate to seek redress when our rights are under attack, because our, our system allows for that. We're not doing anything wrong. We're just saying, hey, that's the system. So we, go to the, we turn to the highest law. Now that said, we should not be known as people, as individuals or as churches who are always demanding our rights. You know, that that's our thing. And we're very angry about all this and, and we're whipping up a, a thing like that. And that's just too much of that that goes on too. We should mainly be known as people that give up our personal liberties for the gospel for the good of other people, like Jesus taught and Jesus lived. That's how we mainly should be known. It's a great witness to go the extra mile. It really is. How many Roman soldiers do you think had somebody volunteer to carry their pack an extra mile? If that just happened three or four times and every time they said, well, why are you doing that? They'd say, I'm a Christian. I just wanted to help you. I'm following you. I follow Jesus. What kind of an impact, gospel impact, would that have on that Roman soldier guy, right? You know, you know these Christians are like nice. <laughs> it's, it's great. I'll, I'll bet it never happened with somebody else. But it was, if, if, a, if a Christian consistently did that for them, and it happened several, even just several times in their life, and they did it with a smile and said, happy to do it, I'll take it an extra mile, that's just, that's beautiful. And it adorns the gospel in a beautiful way. So I don't think we should be rushing to assert our rights, but we should always think of ourselves you know, I love the word ambassadors. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says we're ambassadors for, for Christ, for the kingdom of God. And I love that phrase. What do ambassadors do? Well, ambassadors always think about everything they're going to say or everything they do and how it might reflect on their country, right? I mean, that's what a good ambassador does. Some ambassadors are jerks. But um, that's what they're supposed to do. Reflect very carefully. What will, if I say something or do something that would reflect poorly on America, I would not do that. I'm going to be very careful about that. We should be like that because we're ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of the king of all the earth, but also our king is a savior that loves sinners and wants to redeem them. So our reflection on our ambassadorial role is not to, I serve, I'm an ambassador for the king of the universe. Just want you to know that. Okay, that's, that's true, but, but, Mainly, we're ambassadors for the gospel, which is about the love of Christ. You know, God can kind of handle his kingdom stuff, the ruler of the world stuff, in fact, the better that he does. People, people do need to see how we honor him as the king of the universe and the Lord of all things. They need to see that in us. But they also need to see the love that he bears towards the lost and the lowest of people. He, we need to, people need to see that in us too. So whether it's a really big deal that has to go before the courts or this small personal thing of us not being treated well or treated fairly, our first thought should be, how does my response impact my witness? How does it impact 
my sharing the gospel with people. That should be our first thought in all of those situations. So instead of just flaring up or reacting or being angry or think about like Jesus would, did Jesus get huffy and demanding? I don't remember him doing that. When they personally slighted him, they punched him and he just asked a question. That's how he responded to getting punched in the face. Why did you do that? What did I do wrong? If I did something wrong, tell me. If not, why did you hit me? That's what he does. I think Jesus put it best for us in Luke 22:27 when he said, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Let's pray. Our gentle, gracious master, we are indeed called to be your people, to follow in your steps. May your love be seen in us in every circumstance. May we be in the world as people who serve and not demand. We serve you first above all other things, especially ourselves. And we serve others. We're willing to endure as you did, suffering for the sake of the gospel. So we ask for wisdom to know when to respectfully ask that our rights be respected and when to simply take what's being thrown at us for your sake because all of it pleases you. And we ask for wisdom that he would have in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.